What do parents from marginalized communities do when the entire school system shuts down and there's no place to send their kids? Well, we're going to talk to people that know how to do it for themselves on today's Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart, the chief influencer at EdPost, a media platform focusing on educational opportunity and justice for every child. And this week, we're doing something a little bit different. We don't have host Ravi Gupta with us. We are actually talking to two people who can help us understand better what parents do from marginalized communities when the schools shut down and they need solutions for their kids. There was a big article in The New Yorker back some time ago when things were starting to take off with homeschooling, black homeschooling, and black students were the fastest growing students who were entering into homeschooling at the time, and they still are. The reasons that black families were seeking out homeschooling is different than the reasons that white families for instance, were seeking out that same type of arrangement, learning arrangement for their kids. So today we're talking to two people that can help us understand this more. First, we're talking to Bernita Bradley, who's the founder of Engage Detroit. She's also a leader at the National Parents Union. She spends a lot of time helping parents figure out ways to take over the educational process for their kids. And that could be through a number of of arrangements, educational co-ops, what are called pods, learning pods, and homeschooling, just straight up old school homeschooling, but from a different perspective, from the perspective of black parents who often don't have the same resources or the same motivations for homeschooling as white families do. We're also going to talk to Janelle Wood, who's the president of the Black Mothers Forum in Arizona, and they are responsible for helping parents form micro schools. And they have a specific interest in creating culturally affirming, safe, and supportive learning environments for families that wouldn't normally find that in the traditional public schools. So Janelle and Bernita can offer us a lot of insight on what parents can do when the whole world doesn't believe that you're the expert on your own child, but you know that you know something about your children and you can be very valuable to them in their education. So let's jump right in. We're going to start with Bernita Bradley first. Bernita Bradley, lifetime advocate and somebody who definitely, definitely reps Detroit really hard in a way that I love. Welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on with us today. Thank you for having me, Chris. Thank you so much. So you wear so many hats, but the main hat that you have always worn is the do it for ourselves hat when it comes to education, powering parents to do it for themselves, whether that be homeschooling or collaboratives, or maybe you have your kids in the mainline district schools, but you still need to advocate for them as if they are your child, your student in your house and that comes first. Why? Why has that always been your push? And where did that come from? I'll say largely because of my mother. I feel like we all stand on the shoulders of somebody. I watched my mother always be that person where in the community, if there wasn't a solution, she tried to make it, especially for children. She only had three children. And at one time, only two children at home. But she always had like 20 children with her. Like, you're not having fun. Let's have a balloon fight. Let's have a water hose fight. Let's do this. Let's walk to this free event. We were poor as ever, right? Right? But my mother was always like on the bus with like seven children, somebody else's kids. Just like sometimes there's some kid we don't even know. We don't we didn't even ask their mama. They just with us downtown all day, you know, but everybody in the community kind of trusted my mom to be that person. 
And especially in school, I was raised in Highland Park, which is a little donut hole in the middle of Detroit. And parents were in school, like parents were allowed in the building. It was nothing for me on any given day to look up and see my mom walking down the hallway to go check up on my brothers or go check up on something else or just up there volunteering for something. My mother was more of a disruptor than I thought she was. I just thought she was being mom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But years later, I found out like my mom was part of the reason that Northern High School walked out when they wouldn't let King come there and speak. And my mom like led rallies and like all kind of things. But I just didn't know that. I didn't see that mom because I wasn't born yet, you know. But she was always just that vigilant woman in the community. And like, you're not going to hurt our babies. I'm here. I'm present. And I'm going to stay present. Yeah, you know me and you've heard me talk across different platforms and shows. So what I'm about to say is not going to shock you. Because as an older Gen X person, I feel like we've lost something when it comes to that level of community, that level of feeling like we belong to each other and that we are each other's job. Like, you know, you say your mom, that was very much an anti-syndrome in my neighborhood. There were people like your mom who always had multiple of us with them, a car full of people going to the Winn-Dixie. Now, she only got a couple of kids, but she got a car full of kids going to Winn-Dixie, right? That was a spirit. That That was a vibe. That was a thing at the time. And I think part of it was some of our parents having come before us in the, the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s, and then having children came from a civil rights ethic or an ethic of fight, fight resistance, fight for your rights. There was some ethic in them that they shared, yeah. no matter what level in life they were. And then we grew up in that. So some of us became that. But then what happened? Like now it does not feel like that spirit is alive still. I really feel like we've had this barrier between the haves and have nots, even in the black community. And a lot of people don't want to talk about that. Right. Like that level of there was some who made it. And once they made it, they felt like I made it. Now you got to make it. And I'm going to need you to stay over there in your hood while I'm over here in my suburb or I'm over here in the better part of the hood. Right. And that in and of itself gave fuel to fire to racists who did not want us to commune, you know, who did not want us to succeed. And then we have the whole systemic poverty thing that caused everything. Right. Like the tearing me and out of homes. Like if you want support for your children, the man can't be there. Like all, all those things that we could talk about for hours. But it's, it's not just one particular thing, you know, and in the school system, it it always became this thing of more teachers who look like us started leaving the building. I hear the story of a lot of people saying like they never had a black educator until they got a certain age. Like most of my teachers were black all of my life. Like the principal's nieces and nephews lived like four doors down from me. And it was nothing for in the summer for me to see Mrs. Couch down the street from me, you know, coming to the house. And I'm like, oh, why is she on my block? <laughs> like, I didn't get in trouble, but I just didn't like the fact that the principal was on my block. Right. Or be in the grocery store in a church and we commune together as a community, as a people. And now we have so many people that aren't invested into our communities that come in our communities to teach our children, but have no understanding about our children. And, you know, uh, a lot of people don't get me wrong, because I'm always telling white people like I don't need you feeling like you can't come to our communities and help out. Right. But when you come here, learn from us, commune with us. Right. Like it's a 
anthropology mindset of that you don't just come to a community, land in a community and think you're going to solve something because you don't have the answers for that community. We are the ones who have the answers for our own community. And the reality is our answers may not look like your answers, right? It may not look like what you feel our solution should look like, but it's our answers and it come from us. Yeah. And I think you just hit on multiple points all at once because that was beautiful, especially coming from Detroit. There was a time in which there was a different community in Detroit. And when I visited, I've only been to Detroit a handful of times and each time it looks like a place where something used to really go down, right? Big, beautiful schools, big, beautiful. Like I did a thing at a school that looked like it had been like one of the biggest union, nice high schools, big auditorium, big, you know, the scale of it was just like nice. But all around it, there were things that had used to be something. They were burnt out. They didn't look the way that they did. And, you know, we don't teach our kids the history of how those things happened, but the bottom fell out of Detroit. Detroit was a mecca at one point, and you had a black civil society and civic society there. You had neighborhoods and places where professional blacks and blacks who worked in the trades and blacks who worked in different types of jobs or whatever all were in the same place. There was a civic society. And there were also white folks, right? Like the city just looked different. And at some point, the economy falls out. There's white flight because people are trying to integrate schools. So now all of a sudden, the surrounding suburbs have hundreds of thousands of white people that they didn't used to have before who took their tax bases with them. And the city and the neighborhood start looking different. The thing you mentioned about the black middle and upper middle class, there starts to become this thing about getting out, like get out of the hood type of thing or get out of the right. So now they're gone, a lot of them. And a lot of our kids are the left behind, like what's the left behind kids that are there. And then now you add this other additional, because you said a lot of people who drive into the city to teach don't look like our kids. And that's happening in cities across the country. Like anybody listening to this, I would implore you to do a rundown on your district to find out how many of your teachers actually live in the city where they they teach in. Definitely don't live in the neighborhoods where the kids they teach are, but even within the city. And that's black and white teachers, by the way. Black and white. Black and white. That's right. Black and white. And that's even administrators, right? That's even the superintendents and administrators, all of that. That's right. That's right. Driving in every day who don't have the same... Even if it's not the same race, it's the same cultural understanding of the world. So we have our kids being taught by even some people of the same race who hold some of the wrong ideas about them. This gets me to your efforts and your pushes around things like educational collaboratives and homeschooling and whatever mechanisms we could use, like black pods or whatever. That is a way in which some parents are taking the power back to put their kids into an educational context that is completely of their own making. So you don't have to worry about whether or not the school, you're dipping your kid like a tea bag in some stupidity, right? right you're creating right. your entire own cup of tea then putting your child in that. How have you seen that work? Have, have you seen that be something that, that works? Yeah, it does work, right? And it has worked generationally because what I'm doing is not new. It's something that we're just cultivating because we got away from it. We're in Black communities when they didn't want to educate us in certain communities. Black people got together in their homes, in barns, in wherever, and said, we're going to start a school, right? And they did it with old books and made up books off of the history that they knew and they remembered from their grandparents. Like they educated children. Um, they used a local Sunday school teacher. She became the math teacher, right? Like all of those type of things. 
So what we're doing isn't new, but the problem is, like you said, the history of Detroit. So there's a gentleman by the name of Jamon Jordan. I would love for you to look him up and interview him. Jamon is our local historian. He's not a whitewashed local historian. He's going to give you all facts, black, white, Hispanic, whatever it is about Detroit. And he will tell you the simple story about redlining in our city and how the two major freeways first built in the city. And quite frankly, the first one in the country was built over black communities. Why was it built Mm -hmm. over black communities? Because black people were thriving and because they were doing exactly what you're asking me about. Like they were taking back power and they were saying, we're going to do this ourselves. If they won't let us in their community, we're going to be a community. We're going to make sure we thrive. And that became a threat to society because how be it that people who they think is of lower statue is supposed to ever thrive. And so when you look at homeschooling, people look at it as, oh, it's just a passing fancy. Like it was just something that happened during the pandemic. And no, it did not happen just during the pandemic. What happened during the pandemic is parents were allowed to see inside of schools in a way that they they were no longer that mom walking through the hallway, right? Like all the time, right? And where my mom was that mom walking through the hallway all the time, those teachers had a little more accountability too because parents were walking through those hallways, you know, and they were making friends with educators. And so now parents were in the, in the midst of a living room, listening to their child. And it was like, wait a minute, there's something wrong with this. If you're talking to children, especially during a pandemic like this, right? And on the flip side, teachers were saying, aha, not for the first time, you're seeing how your child is in my classroom. And th- and parents mm-hmm. is like, wait a minute, though, this is still my baby, though. Like, don't aha me. Like, this is my child. <laughs> and you the one chose your job. Yeah. You the one chose to yeah. do this job, right? And so parents were even asking in Detroit for help to make education better while they were doing this in their homes. And a lot of them was getting like this wall of, you're the parent, sit back, shut up, let us do the job. We're the professionals. But they're like, yeah, but you're making my child feel broken when your system is actually broken and and how you're treating my child is what's broken. And so let me just go ahead and tune off, log off this computer and I'll do this myself. And so, like I always tell people, while I've always been a proponent for showing parents, like I really don't want parents to log off. I want them to be there and stay there and hammer in the advocacy because what you do for your child is being done for every child. And there can only be one Bernita or one Miss Towton or Miss Kilgore. There can only be one of us, but we can show you how to do what we do so that you, it's more and more advocates being created. But parents were fed up because then they start looking at the statistics of our city and they start looking at the graduation rates and they started, you know, a lot of us were already doing that, but more people started doing it. And when they saw that, they were like, ah, I ain't got time to wait for you. While the district was saying, give us time, give us time, like give us a little. Yeah, you talking about a 10 year plan and my child's in the second grade. That means by the time your plan solidifies, my child going to be in the 12th grade and you're going to have failed a whole nother. So let me go ahead and do this myself. You know, does it seem, though, for those parents that choose to do that seems hard? does not seem like easy work. You know, like a lot of us had our kids home during the pandemic. I had three at home during the pandemic and I had always wanted to, you know, be a homeschooler. 
it just never like it never felt like career wise and all that goes into it. It just never felt like it was an option for us. But it really kind of was because, you know, we have two adults in our house that both work from home. I mean, I travel for work sometimes. So it's possible. Then the pandemic comes along and they're at home already. And there's all these complicated things. I just wonder how you think about like, where's the support for parents that want to do it? Yeah. So my daughter asked me and I think I had these preconceived notions that I couldn't do it as a single mom. And when I was married, like I was like, yeah, I'm not about to be your enemy. I don't want to be your enemy sitting up like, get this work done. Do it. You didn't complete algebra, right? And like even she yeah. asked me in fifth grade, pandemic happened, she's in 11th grade, and I was forced to have to do it because my daughter told me she was going to drop out of school if she did not, something didn't change for education. And so I was like, okay, well, let's figure it out. So I got with other homeschool, like professional families. Like, what are you, what have you done? And more and more parents got together and the theme became parents supporting parents, right? Showing one another how we can do this because we have all these stereotypes of now I got to sit in front of a desk and make sure you're getting it or I can't work at home school or there has to be one parent at home working while the other one's making this boatload of money in order to survive, you know, because you would have to be the stay at home mama. We got parents do it all and we're learning. We've got parents who do it from all different perspectives. And we've had some parents who were like, well, look, I just needed this during the pandemic. And now I want my child to go back to school. And when they went back to school, a lot of those families called me like within about six months, Chris, like, oh, this still some bull. <laughs> like, like right. I really, yeah. I thought they had improved some stuff, like missing our children. But I see now it's still some bull. And children, quite frankly, who called us. One young student called and said, Miss Bradley, can you ask my mama to homeschool me again? Like, she will not homeschool me. And, my, and I'm so tired of these teachers and they not teaching us nothing and blah, blah, blah. And so we became like a network of support for one another. So like in the rural communities where homeschooling has been like more pronounced to people where you see the Christian faith-based homeschool groups, that's how they survive. It's, it's generally not just one mom deciding to homeschool. Like they are a network. They are networking with one another. They're pooling funds. They're even finding funds from their local churches, spaces where they can have sessions and blah, blah, blah. The Niles Community School District here in Michigan, they actually get funding from their local public school, Chris. Like they literally have mm -hmm. a partnership mm -hmm. where they get the extracurricular dollars for their homeschool co-op to actually run a homeschool co-op. Wow. But in black communities, they don't want to do that, right? They don't want to do that because that's putting power in people's hands. Mm -hmm. You know, people insinuate that home white homeschool moms are super rich all the time. All of them aren't. They just have these connections where they're like, oh, my brother's cousin, sister's mother, uncle is the superintendent. <laughs> and we're going to have a meeting with him to show him how this actually benefits him to partner with our homeschool co-op. Yeah. And, you know, they develop systems. They've developed little yeah. systems, systems of support. And what I just heard you say was, you know, it's possible for us to develop systems of support. But that was what was missing, I think, a little bit in families like mine that attempted throughout the pandemic to create a homeschool environment was that we did not necessarily all have the connections. We didn't all necessarily, yep. because it was, you know, first of all, the pandemic was foist upon us. It came out of nowhere. 
and all of a sudden we're doing this, right? So having to put stuff into place, and I just noticed that you know you were part of a couple of efforts nationally, and you've gotten to talk to other people in other cities that were doing something similar, and I just feel like in the people I've talked to in each case, they formed little systems. They formed ability to support each other in some kind of way. So you didn't have to do it all by yourself. I wish there was something more robust nationally because I think as we move forward, people now are more open to different arrangements for educating their kids. Like even the ones who went back to the schools, even in our cases, people who went back to the schools realize you didn't really go back to the same thing that was there before because the schools haven't all recovered. They're now dealing with some post-pandemic stuff like behavior, right? Behavior of staff and students. Uh, both. Yeah, both. This isn't your pre-pandemic schools anymore, even though they look the same kind of, you know, we're not back necessarily. So I just wonder about this support system. So us creating a system look like this for me. So before my work around advocacy, I just about knew every organization that touched young people in the city of Detroit. Every organization, whether it was a boxing class, a STEM class, like in some way, like ironically, I feel like I was set up for this life because I literally had these genuine connections with people where I had either worked for them or my daughter had been in the program and the program was so good that I recruited children for the program or I worked with TFA, Teach for America teachers to support their staff to understand how to connect to our communities. So what I did was I went right back to those same supports. I was like, look, I supported you before, so hey, I need I need this for our families. Like these are homeschool families. And it was so weird how so many of them was like, oh, homeschool? Oh no, everybody's homeschooling. Like this, no, everybody. I'm like, no, no, these are homeschool, homeschool families. They're like, oh, so, but they're going back after the pet. No, no, no. Like these are homeschool families, right? And even them switching their minds about how the requirements to get into their programs, like. Okay, so we can be lenient. We don't need necessarily a school transcript for this child to attend or even get in some of those programs to question the type of children that they have been letting in their programs because they have been letting the choice students in, right? The AB mm -hmm, students in. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, you need to let all students in. Right now, every child needs your support. And so we created a system by simply going back to some of those people who are involved in the same system we left from. But we created it to make sure it's surrounded and focused on the children who need it most, like our children. Mm. Like we don't need this to look like such and such school. We need this to look like a mom at home or a dad at home who's working with homeschooling their child and they need these supports. And we're three years in. Just got our first building, Chris. And I really honestly will say, like, it's a beautiful thing to watch this evolve. Mm. We started out with like a pilot of 12 families. Now we have 104 families and we have uh, 203 children, I think it is. I've talked to you about this before, Bernita. Like, you're such a special light in this situation. And I'm going to say why now, right? Like, like people listening to this or whatnot. So there's so many different ways for us to be advocates and activists and whatnot. And the people who, you know, love to get in the street and throw rocks and get on camera and do the social media stuff or whatnot, there is a place for all of that for being loud and noisy and being heard and seen or whatever. That is one form of this. But in our history, in Black history, for instance, you've seen a lot of pictures like Harriet Tubman and others carrying a lantern or, you know, lighting a path or having people walk behind them out of harm's way onto a path 
like the Underground Railroad or something. Now, that's different than protesting, right? See, that's walking people from a problem to a solution. That's like getting them out of bondage and into freedom. It's like holding the light that lights the path that no one can see until you're holding that light. That's a different level of advocacy. That's a different level of activism because no shade on the rock throwing people that like to do the social media thing. No shade on that because we need all types. We need people in it. Wherever you are, we need you working on things. But at the end of the day, we need people that light a path that get us from a problem to a solution, light a path that gets us from bondage to freedom, light a path that gets us from having no hope, no opportunity to a place where our kids are actually succeeding. So when I watch you and people don't know this, you know, people listening to this wouldn't know this, but I saw you years ago before you knew me from a can of paint and you were working on the Parent Action Network, I think it was called. It was something, the Parent Something Network. The Detroit Parent Network, yeah. And it had all the right words in it for me. It had parent and it had network in it. And I was building a network at the time in the Twin Cities of parents that were fed up and that were tired. And I took your example to a funder here locally and said, we need something like this, right? So here you are in another part of the country. Your name pops up on an internet search on things that parents are doing in my feed. I don't know you. You don't know me. But you're doing something that lights a path in your community. And I totally steal all of it and go to my local funders and say, this is what we need. We need something just like this, just this work that Bernita is doing there. And I need to do something like Bernita is doing, whatever. I hear we are all these years later, we know each other in a completely different context. Yeah. But going back in time, that is the power of doing something in your own local community and thinking no one is watching in the whole world. No one can see what you're doing. And here God is like a super spreader of your example. God is spreading your example in other places. Yeah. The work that we do is not just for us. And if we look, when we look at it as it's just for us, then we do no good because we only going to change something in this little pocket right here. But when we look at this as a broader perspective, like what I do here matters. These 200 children that I'm touching, it, even if it just becomes that 200 children, if I touch their lives in a way that I need to, they're going to expand to at least a million families over the course of the next 10, 15 years. I'm good with if I know I'm just touching them. The problem comes in when people are reaching and trying to force themselves to touch so many people and they're they're not thinking about who else they're bringing along with them, right? They want to be the ones to touch everybody. Like you said, Harriet, she she was literally thinking about the people she bring with her intentionally because it wasn't just about her freedom. She didn't have to keep going back. She could have kept on going and said, I'm good, right? I'm free. But she was like, I'm doing this intentionally to make sure that more and more generations are free. And so like, it's not something that I look at myself as so deep or anything, but even the advocacy work that I do, I'm always daring parents. Like the services the parents get is for free, but I'm like, you got to pay this forward though. Like you can't just come in here and get this. And then right now, so right now I'm in this situation of helping parents to understand that you do know you supposed to be helping plan this. Like, I'm not the only one in here with the brain. These are your children. You're supposed to say, oh, you want to host a fishing party? Let's get some poles. I don't know how to fish. Who know how to fish, right? Like, understanding that I'm not the only light to be shining in a room. And when we think like that, then the whole world will be better. Well, I think that's a great place to land in this discussion. When you were lighting that path, 
and they're actual people who are going from bondage to freedom, whether it's 10 or 15 or 12 or 8 or 6, their lives are eminently super valuable once they make it from the place that they were to the place that you're helping them get to. So I will take, I have a good friend, Nakima Levy Armstrong in the Twin Cities, who always used to say to me, Chris, I will take 12 on fire people more than a hundred lukewarm people on anything I'm trying to do, mm. right? And that was interesting for me because I was always saying, we need more numbers type of thing. And she was saying, no, we need more people on fire. Yeah. We need smaller numbers of people who are really on fire. And you're really on fire. So I appreciate you for all the work that you're doing and for the way that you are actually spreading it to others. You're not gatekeeping. You're actually helping others find their own path and their own power one of our biggest powers in education is the ability to be autonomous, to have sovereign kind of control over our children and their intellectual development, to be the ones, like be the president of your child's intellectual development. And we have lots of parents that actually need to be convinced. They need permission in some ways, they think, to become that because there are all these professionals. There are all these like super professional people who went to college and they got degrees to know everything they're supposed to know about your child. And see, the funny thing is the majority of the people in many of our situations who've been trusting that for years, let me just drop my child off to the experts with the, the degrees or whatnot, at some point get disappointed. Yeah. At some point they figure out, oh, all that social training, all that stuff y'all did didn't necessarily mean that it should supplant my ability to know my child and know what they need. I'm not as ignorant as the system thinks that I am. Not about my child. I might not be an expert on a lot of things, but when it comes to my own child, I do know things that the system doesn't. So thank you for empowering folks. And I, you know, I hate the word empower too. Let me say this because I always like to correct my own language. You know, we were talking about that last time, the empowering words. <laughs> yeah. Empower says that you're doing something for people that's not in them already. And I've always said that I don't think that parents need to be empowered. I think that parents need to be in power. Yeah. And those are two totally different concepts. Being empowered means somebody is giving you something. Being in power means you don't need anybody to give you something. You just need a fair shake in life, right? So yeah. Bernita Bradley, leader at the National Parents Union, also a longstanding parent advocate and advocate of autonomous education. And by that, I mean homeschooling, Black educational pods, educational collaboratives and cooperatives, whatever it takes for people themselves to lead education for themselves and then to find support with each other. That's where you'll find Bernita Bradley. Thank you for joining the show today. We appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me so much. Thank you. So next up, we speak with Janelle Wood, the president of the Black Mothers Forum in Arizona. And as we said at the top of the show, the Black Mothers Forum was responsible for helping parents launch micro schools with a specific interest in making sure that they created culturally affirming, safe, and supportive learning environments for Black children who weren't exactly being served the best in the traditional public schools. So let's jump right in with Janelle. So Janelle Wood, leader of the Black Mothers Forum, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Let's jump right in. You know, I want to ask you some questions. I've talked to you before. I've learned more about the work that you all have done in Arizona around micro schools and around the need for Black communities and Black families to have more autonomy and more flexibility for how they will educate their children. And one thing I just want to start from the beginning to ask you about, because I know you have insight into the reasons and the motivations for Black parents to do that is not always the same as why other groups might want to homeschool or self-school in some way, shape, or form their kids. What's the difference? What is the real motivation 
for Black families to take on that level of autonomy with their children? You know, what we have found in the work that we've done since about 2016 was that many of our parents and our students were feeling like they, one, were not being heard, two, they didn't feel safe or validated in the space, nor did they feel supported. And so what we were finding was many of our families were being misunderstood, lots of misperceptions, and it was just a lot of bullying and angst. Bullying is one of the major reasons. Unresolved bullying is one of the major reasons many of our families have moved their children into our micro schools is to make sure their children have a safe and supportive learning environment. When we think about micro schools, just the word micro and school, I think, listen, man, it is hard to get people to understand all different kinds of schools, period. But this one's a new one. What is a micro school? So a micro school is five to 10 at the most 12 student schools. And so it kind of reminds you of the one room schoolhouse. We as a people are not strangers to this type of learning environment. Oftentimes we forget that many of our beginnings came from the one room schoolhouse where you had every grade in that space. And so we have blended grades, K through eighth grade, and we bring them all together, but it creates a smaller learning environment, which gives uh, the teachers the opportunity to deepen relationships uh, with our children. You know, and I know many of our communities have faced many traumas, not only in the communities, but in the household. And so being able to deepen relationships, not only with those babies, but with their parents, we've seen a significant lift in the children and their families. Mm. Where did the Black families that are actually out on the front getting this done, where are they finding out about this and how did this become a thing for them? So, you know, prior to COVID, in 2019, we as a group were kind of getting exhausted with going from one school board meeting to the other, sitting in one principal or superintendent meeting from the other, trying to keep our children from being suspended and expelled as a result of their response to bullying. And so what we decided then was that we need to look for a model that would show people what a safe and supportive learning environment would look like, because that's what we've been crying out for for the past several years. And so we knew homeschool wouldn't work. In 2019, we didn't think about that because we knew many of our parents had to work. We were looking at private school, but we know they couldn't afford that. And then COVID hit. And when COVID hit, all children were forced to be home. So parents were home. And so parents got a chance to see what was really going on when they were looking in the Google Classroom and the Zoom calls with the teachers and how their child was being talked to or not talked to. And they started to recognize there was a problem, but they did not want to homeschool indefinitely. They had to get back to work. So we said, what about some sort of group homeschool approach where we have parents and teachers come together that actually can do this? What does that look like? And so we found this group called Prenda. Prenda is where we started. And I myself went through the training to become a learning guide. I told people, I said, I am not an educator, but I am well-educated. So I figured I'll go through the training and learn how to work with little people, K through eighth grade. <laughs> now, let me tell you, that is not my anointing, nor is it my gift. But I did it for six weeks, six to eight weeks. I learned how to do it. I set up our first micro schools. So myself and three other mothers came together. How they found out about it is it was word of mouth. We have community meetings once a month and we started to promote it in our meetings. And during COVID, I did something called noonday check-in. 
since people were home. So when I was doing those noonday check-ins via Zoom, mothers would join and they would be complaining about what was going on in the school or the school wasn't providing services for their children while they were home. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, hey, we're about to start these micro schools. Are you interested? What is that? Explained it to them. They're like, I'll be your first one. And that's how we did it. We did it virtually, word of mouth, our monthly meetings. And then one parent after the other parents started talking to one another, put their children in it. So we had 13 children. Our first 13 children started January 2021. And then the word started to spread as their children were talking to their friends about, wow, I go to this thing called a micro school. I love it. The teachers look like me. They care about me and I get the attention I need. So then they went and told their parents. So their parents looked us up on the website. And that's how it began. And it's really been word of mouth. We really haven't needed to market it because we really want to make sure we can manage it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But we want to perfect the model so that we can show other states and school districts how to really create these safe and supportive learning environments for children and children of color, period. You know, Janelle, what I love about this so much is, number one, I love the healthy motivation for Black mothers to advocate and to be out front on something. There's a national parents movement right now, which in many ways is leaving out the parents of color and parents that have other reasons for wanting to defend their children. And it's getting a lot of the national spotlight and sucking up a lot of the energy around what parent activism is. And much of it is about stopping other people from learning things that you don't want your kids to learn rather than getting your own children what you want them to learn. And that is leaving us out. So to see Black moms in a Black mother forum push something that is so uniquely therapeutic and solution-oriented and solution-based and empowering and full of agency. This is a powerful parent movement and foot forward. What can we do for our kids? What's our responsibility to get it done? How can we pull together the resources to make it happen? And then you just said a few other things that just make me feel warm as a parent. Like so much of the other parent discussion is just so angry and hostile and about just like fighting and what you want to stop people from doing. But the idea that you would have intergenerational grade levels mixed together in small environments that are culturally affirming and supportive, that it's a collective Mm -hmm. parents, students, teachers creating an environment creating a world where learning can happen, co-creational. This all makes me feel so good. What we found, Chris, is when we brought in our educators, our Black educators from the system, from the traditional public school system, there was a lot of unlearning that had to take place, right? And it's a matter of me putting together the process of helping them to unlearn certain practices of discipline. So discipline is huge in the traditional setting. They have all these regulations. And we know, you know, as a black male, that our black males are the ones that are subject to some harsh penalties for minor behavior infractions. And so what I had to do was help the teachers understand we don't do that here. Our children don't get suspended. No one's being expelled. That's not going to happen. And we're going to help this child learn how to manage themselves. And that means I got to connect with this baby. And they looked at me like, what are you talking about? So I showed them. I said, you get eye level with them and you ask them the question, what's going on? Why are we having a problem doing what you need to do today? And the child knows exactly what's wrong with them. Basic stuff. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I didn't get any rest last night. Well, why didn't you get any rest? Well, my mom kept me up. What was your mom doing? And, you know, we talked. And so... 
saying, okay, so what is it going to take to give you the energy that you need today? Either it's take a nap. I need to go lay down, Miss Janelle, for a little bit. Give me a nap and I'll get back on track. But what have I done? I validated that they're having a problem. I validated that if I can help them solve this problem, that they can get on with their day and come on and learn because that's what they're there to do is to learn and to grow. So we call it connect and redirect. But I just added a new piece to that called reflect. We have the child reflect on the behavior, what we can do differently to make a better decision about how to respond. And then I redirect you back to what you were supposed to be doing today in the first place, either getting that reading done or your math done or your science done or your social, whatever we're doing, you can get on back to it. Case in point, I had a young man, kindergarten. People didn't realize that a lot of our three-year-old who went through COVID at four-year-old missed preschool. Hmm. They were home for 2020. When they would have been at preschool or Head Start, where they're learning directions, how to follow directions, they missed that. So I had three-year-olds coming in as five-year-olds. So you come in thinking they understand what you're asking them to do. And I had one who he'd climb all over the floor and he'd spin around and he'd tell me, no, I am not about to do any of the above Blah, blah. And I had to step back and go, oh my gosh, they missed a whole four-year-old. We're going to have to go back and work on directions. And so when we took the time so that they could be successful, then he was able to talk to me, tell me what he needed. And he said, Mr. Janelle, I got all this energy today. I said, you do? What do you need to do? I need to run it off. I let him run and run. I forgot how many laps. And then I stopped him in the middle. I said, hey, where you at? He said, I think I got about two more in me. I said, okay, go for it. So he ran two more laps. Guess what? He came back. He said, I'm done now. I'm hungry. Got him a snack. And then I said, now, can we get back to your reading? I can, Miss Janelle. Put his little headsets back on. Finish what he needed to do. One of the smartest young men in my class. I made him my sergeant of arms because he was my one that could help make sure everybody was doing what they needed to do once he figured out what needed to be done. Now, one of the things that we do, our teachers have the mindset of a coach. I'm not going to give you the answer. I'm going to give you the tools to get to the answer. And that was a major shift from where they were coming from. So we changed their name from teacher to coach. I love that. The coach facilitates your performance. You're raising a couple of issues here that I think are really important. So one, no matter what, for the success of new educational opportunities like this, you're always going to need talent. And where you're going to get your talent is a question that arises for me. You're raising a point about even when you get that talent, you're going to have to retrain them for the new opportunity. Listen, this isn't all clean and perfect, right? So once they get there, you still have to retrain them and get them ready for the next level. Another thing that you're raising is things that can be done when you have a smaller environment that you can't do when you've got 1,600 kids in a school and you just got to move everybody by 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock and 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock. You got to get kids in the lunchroom and out of the lunchroom. So things have to be regimented. So the idea that a young person can say like, listen, I need a nap. or I just need to go take five minutes or 10 minutes and do something else. That becomes less and less possible the bigger and the bigger the school gets. Mm-hmm. Now, how many kids in a 1600 population size school, how many of that 1600 need a nap that day? maybe 100 or 150, right? Maybe even more than that, right? What kind of problem is it when you have that many kids that need the special attention that you just mentioned that you were able to give this young man that actually needed to run outside and run it off for a minute? When you get the teachers in the space, understanding how to help people self-manage themselves, you don't need to do all that self-management. And the ones who really need your attention, you can actually focus in on because the other ones are doing what they need to do. 
So even in our micro schools, when people come, every group that has come out to visit our micro schools, they were like, this is the most calming, chill group of children we have ever met. They just, they know how to move, right? It's like a rhythm. They know what is expected of them because we set their goals at the beginning of the semester. They know what they have to do. It's just like your job. You go to work, they give you a job description. They said, this is what your job is, and this is what you must accomplish by X amount of time. Our children are treated just like that. We give them that much respect. They're like, okay, this is my job. This is what you have to complete. Now, what else do you want to complete? Oh, I want to add this to my performance. All right, because at the end, we're going to evaluate that, that you actually completed what you said you were going to complete. They go, this is what I want to do by the end of the year. This is what I want to do by the end of the semester. This is what I need to do by the end of this month, by this week, by this day. They have their stuff mapped out. And then just like you and me, I may get to work one day and go, "Mm, I am tired. I overdid it last night or this weekend. I just need to take a moment, get myself together. Sometimes they do that. And I don't feel like pushing through that today. But I know since I didn't push through it today, I best push through it tomorrow to get this done by this week. They know what they need to do. So the ones who are really struggling, then we can take them aside and really give them the special attention they need. But the rest of the class is moving right along, doing what they need to do. And parents in the evening, they also have a responsibility. They must create a safe and supportive learning environment at home. And when I recognize that's not happening, guess who they get to talk to? They get to talk to me. (laughs) And I go, what's up? I have one mother. I said, before you tell me something that's not true, your child already told me what's going on at home. And they're like, oh, Lord. I said, so what do you need from me to help you set up a structured home that mimics what they get here, which is a place of safety and support? So they can do that at home because, you know, learning is all day long. They learn at home how you conduct yourself, how you conduct business. They're going to conduct business just like that. Is that what you want? Mm -hmm. No, Miss Janelle. No, I have two questions I'll be remiss if I didn't ask you before we leave. Someone is somewhere else listening to this who would want to follow in your footsteps, organizing local people to make the same thing happen for them, to get this opportunity for them wherever they are. People are all over the country. So the two questions I would have for you, number one, is what advice would you give them to just get started? Because getting started is the first step to anything. And the second question is more of a global, a higher level question around what enabling state factors need to be in place or should people be advocating so that the state policy enables these type of opportunities to be able to happen? Well, one of two things. I need people that have leadership courage. You've got to be courageous. Because folks are going to definitely come against you when you do something outside of the system because it makes everyone uncomfortable. But you must call the meeting. You also can join our meeting every third Wednesday. I always tell people, reach out to me. I will help you get meetings started in your area. I will attend your meetings in your area, either virtually, and if need be, I will fly in and help you. But I need women who are courageous, mamas who don't care what it's going to take, and have a passion and a fire to say enough is enough. So that's number one. Number two, at the state level, you have to show up at the meetings, the legislative meetings. You got to show up for these committees and you've got to push for choice. You got to push for policies that give you the freedom to put in place alternative models. And so one of the things that we do is we aligned ourselves with certain legislatures. Now, they may not look like me, And they may not even be of my same party. I have found that's been a 
very big challenge for me because I am of a Democrat party. I'm all about fighting for social justice. But in this area of education, we do differ. And I know, like what you said, my Republican brothers and sisters, they are more open to this, but for different reasons. But nevertheless, it still opens up that opportunity for us. And so I said, I'm going to align with folks that allow us the opportunity to go ahead and exercise our freedom of choice. Because at the end of the day, Chris, every state has said in their constitution that every child is supposed to be afforded a quality education. That's right. Either an adequate education in some or a uniform education in some. But yeah. Now, how we live that is different in our different states. But nonetheless, it must occur. And we must, as mothers, as parents, we must insist that they get that done. And that means we're going to have to be consistent, persistent, and continue the course no matter what it takes. And that's where we're at. We are going to take control over what's best for our children and pour into them the type of moral character that we want them to have, the type of academic fortitude we want them to have, and the type of curiosity. I want my children to be curious, and we want them to follow that curiosity all the way through till they find the solution. And we want them to be solution focused. That's where I'm at. That's where our mothers are at. And if we all can get to that space together where we are focused on the solution, stop fussing about how it's going to get done and say, you know what, but at the end of the day, this needs to get done. We'll talk about the how as we go, but right now, let's get it done. You know, I just want to tell you as we wrap, this has been a very depressing few weeks for me as someone who thinks a lot about education and follows the news every day. I'm one of those 24-hour news cycles and junkies who has to be because I'm in media. And there are so few things that come up that have any hope or promise in these debates that we're having right now that when I get to a conversation like this, it's God's way of showing me that there is a cleansing of the palate and a way to say there is a positive way forward. There is a solutions-based way to think about the work that we do. There is a way for us to take agency and ownership for our own children and to create and craft for them the world we want them to live in, not the world that someone else has decided for us that they should live in, and that we can do some deep programming of them, which is something I've been so worried about. We are programming kids towards failure and towards their own cultural death in some cases. So everything that you have said to me today actually was the universe's way of sending me a message back to say, knock it off with the negative, because this is what I needed. You know, this is the conversation I needed. Productive, realistic, something people can do. And, you know, the end goal here, what you were describing for me that our children would be in as an environment, as an educational environment, for me is beyond most things we talk about when we talk about making schools better or reforming. A lot of what we're talking about oftentimes is mitigating harm. The last thing you just said there about you want your kids to be curious and free, you know, like I'm trying to raise free people. I say that all the time. As a parent, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to raise free people. So I feel like they're going to be freer if I put them in what you just described to me than most what else the other folks are offering me. So thank you so much for your work. Thank you for what you do, Chris. Thank you for shedding a spotlight on this and exposing it. The more Black parents are aware that these alternatives and these options are out there, the more they will start to demand this. You don't know what you don't know until you know it. And then once you know it, you start to demand it. And you know, we as a people 
are resiliently demanding people, we will continue to push and we will accomplish it. And I'm so excited about what the future holds for our community, for our culture, for our people, but above all, for our children. Our children have hope. These little babies that I see every day, they have hope and they are excited about coming to school. Their parents say they get up before the parent gets up. They're dressed. They're like, come on, you're going to make me late. When have you heard that? I got to get to school. They're so excited and engaged. They want to learn. And one little boy told me this when he found out that I was an advocate for educational rights for him. We did a march on March 1st. I'll send it to you. We did a march for education for all March. And our children participated and their families. And I asked, what's your feedback from the march? He said, I didn't know so many of you were fighting for me to get a good education. And I said, and so what's your response to that? This is one of my sixth graders. He said, I will excel. Wow. I'm going to excel. I love it. Janelle Wood with the Black Mothers Forum. Thank you so much. Have a good day. This show actually is one of the most important topics that I think that I will ever cover. It's the way that we, as people who represent marginalized communities, think about our own freedom in education. How much power do we have to determine the learning process and to be guardians of the intellectual development of our own children? Most of what I'm talking about across all of our shows, to me, is a way for us to be free. And that's the main motivation even for doing this show and doing the work that we do. So I am so excited anytime we get to speak with people like Janelle and Bernita about how we can make ourselves free in education, how we can control the apparatus that educates our children. So thank you so much for listening to our show. For those of you that want to help us make the show grow and do better, here are a couple ways. One, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to it. Two, you can leave a review of the show wherever you listen to it and let other people know about it. Three, you can share it with friends and family, and we would really appreciate that. That's the way that we are growing right now. It's mostly through word of mouth and through the dedicated people that listen to us like you. We also would love to hear from you. Any feedback that you have for us, we are open to hearing it. There are two ways that you can share feedback with us. The first is you can leave us a voicemail, and the number for that is 321-213-9171. The other way is that you can send us an email and you send that to citizen Stewart show at thebranchmedia.org. Citizen Stewart show at thebranchmedia.org. Thank you so much for being an engaged listener and for supporting education and democracy in the United States. This has been another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show, and we appreciate you as always. 